Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I started this podcast a couple years ago because I really enjoy talking with and learning from other researchers, and I decided to just share that and see if anybody else wanted to listen. Today I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Simon Donner. So Simon is a climate scientist, a writer, a speaker at the University of British Columbia in Canada. He's also a surfer. I was introduced to him by Professor Catherine Hayhoe. She introduced us over email, and I invited Simon to come on. He was gracious enough to come on and talk about his research, which has to do with coral reefs, the fate of coral reefs. He is one of the people behind this coral bleaching database that we talk about on the episode and he also talks a lot and does research on the challenges of adaptation in what is broadly called the developing world. I don't want to talk too much up here at the top of the episode. I want to get into it just quickly as we can here. If you want to find Professor Donner on Twitter, it's at Simon Donner, just like it's spelled here. And he also has the website simondonner.com if you want to see any of his recent work, like the Climate Determinism article that he wrote or Scientific American not too long ago. Okay, so thanks to Professor Donner for the time and for the enthusiasm. I really liked this chat, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Let's, uh, yeah, let's just go ahead. Let's get into it. Here we go. Simon, there you are. Hi, Dan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Yeah, I can see you. I can hear you. All seems to be working just fine. Let me start off by just saying I'm glad you're here. Thanks for taking some time to talk to me. How are you doing? How's the... I'm, I'm good, thanks. We're just we're just wrapping up the semester here, and uh, somehow the pandemic has radically increased just the amount of small little bits of university work. So it's been a very busy few months. Hmm. So when you say small little bits of work, like extra, just extra everything, or there's everything is is that much harder, or everything is that much, there's the procedures are complicate a little bit more complicated, or what did you? I think it's mind? actually a lot of yeah, it's a good question. There's I think there's been a lot of sort of goodwill towards let's try to do good things for the student. Let's take advantage of this time to organize things. Let's say we have meetings. And uh, it just, uh, it's just been, and the result is it just, um, everybody feels like it's too much. Actually, our university decided to push the semester. Ours isn't the only one. Uh, next semester forward by a week, not to cancel a week, but just to say the students and everybody needs more of a break over the holidays, which is um, telling. Yeah. Yeah. And er- pretty much everyone was in agreement, I would imagine. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, this, you know, this is the funny thing, right? Like being, you know, I'm a climate scientist, but I'm also a university professor. And I think there's, speaking to people in the public, when I'm at events and everything, there's sort of an idea of what scientists do, which is often different than our day to day. And what people don't realize is a lot of what we do day to day is not different from what other people do in their jobs. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I have lots of meetings about organizing things on campus. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking to students and talking to colleagues about, um, about work, uh, moving, moving electronic pieces of paper around and all those Mm. sorts of things. And then hopefully I have time to also do my science. Yeah. Yeah. 
hopefully <laughs> yeah writing recommendation letters and I, d- I did a few of those this week because people are starting to apply for phd programs and graduate programs and things and yes it is yeah. the season <laughs> yeah it's kind of nice to do though like you know to be able to hopefully boost up another person and give them you know a little bit of a recommendation and hopefully help them along the way it can be nice yeah. Yeah. I actually, I, I, uh, Dan, I, I love doing it. I mean, it obviously it takes time, but I mean, that's like, you know, if you think about it, that's like that's sort of the most important part of our jobs is sort of training and bringing along the next set of people. And I was helped by so many people when I was a student that, you know, you got to pay it forward. So. Absolutely. Yeah. It's critical, yeah. right? Like I can think back and I'm so grateful to so many people along the way who helped me in, in small and big ways. And as I've gotten a little bit more senior in the field. I agree. That's been one of the best parts, just being able to pay that forward and to like champion really um, people with a lot of potential and people who are really passionate to be able to champion them and say, yes, this person, you need this person <laughs> get them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> let, let them into your program. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I've, I've argued that a few times. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So you mentioned um, your work and your research stuff. Um, so what are some recent projects that you've been working on to kind of keep it current? You know, like what, um, I mean, not that these are like super timely necessarily podcasts, but just, I like to ask people what they've been doing lately. Cause it's kind of fresh on their, their minds, you know? Well, the big, the big thing, my, my research is sort of at the intersection of sort of climate science and marine science and a little bit of, uh, I guess what you could call public policy, but it's almost sort of like just really sort of general social sciences around adaptation and decision-making. Mm-hmm. And, and so the folks in my, in my research group and I, uh, I've been, a lot of what I've been doing lately is supporting students and postdocs and the work they're doing. And, um, so of late, I have my group right now, my research group right now is there's a lot of people working on uh, issues related to climate change and coral reefs. Mm-hmm. And so we have uh, a, put together a, a big database of all of the records of coral bleaching going back basically throughout history. So everything that's been mentioned in a publication somewhere, um, whether it's an actual, an academic publication, it's uh what we sometimes call gray literature, uh, things that are not necessarily that, you know, put out reports or people that just witness something and never recorded it anywhere. And so we have this mm-hmm. enormous database. And so we're, uh, with, uh, my graduate student, Alejandra Virgin Ursula, we're, we're finishing up the database, uh, to make available and interpolating it so that it's sort of an even grid every year. So you can really compare mm-hmm. the data going forward over time. Uh, and then I, you know, I'm working with another student, uh, Pedro Gonzalez Espinoza and I, are working on using it to sort of better understand how you can predict bleaching using ocean temperatures, but other climate variables trying to look at, can we use this to identify places that are a little bit more resilient than others? Hmm. So it's, so it's, it's like an ecology question being asked with climate data in a way. Right. How are you connecting all those variables together? What's the relationship? How are you building that up? So the, most of what this comes from is the question of, you know, what causes coral bleaching, this, this yeah. paling and possible mortality of corals. And the main driver, you know, it can be driven by anything that happens uh, in the environment that changes the conditions outside the range that the corals are used to. And the major driver that we see in nature is unusually warm water temperatures. So just to give you an example of how much more common this has become. In the database before the 1980s, I think we have 12 records 
I'd have to check the numbers that I'm mm. right in front of me. Mm. And overall, uh, after 1980, we have about 21,000. Mm. Oh, now, wow. some of that is that we're looking for coral bleaching. Scientists right. are looking for it more right. than they used to. But it really, you know, from uh, paleo records and everything, it really does seem that that bleaching is something that has become a sort of mass, large, like ocean scale phenomenon because mm. of rising ocean temperatures. And you can, um, there's, there's a group, uh, at NOAA in the United States uh, called Coral Reef Watch that has developed a, like a, a pretty good system for how to predict bleaching events in real time, just using uh, ocean temperatures. So using like the accumulated heat stress. So the, the logic is sort of like, um, using the heat, heating degree days, which is similar to what uh, people doing calculations for air conditioning do. Mm. How much would you need to run your air conditioner depends on the accumulated War, you know, warmth above some threshold over time. Right. Yeah. And so you can use the same logic to predict, not for sure that bleaching will happen, but the likelihood. And so what we're doing with the, uh, the database is, well, first of all, just testing is bleaching becoming more common over time. And the evidence is very uh, strongly yes on that. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is, okay, can we um, use the database to refine methods of prediction beyond the sort of course method that's generally used of this accumulated heat stress. Are there other variables that come into play? Uh, for example, like the past experience the corals have had or the amount of light they're exposed to because mm-hmm. um, the amount of uh, UV radiation in particular can influence whether corals bleach or not. And, uh, and so there's been evidence, for example, that reefs uh, that experience just cloudy days during the hot time of the year uh, during a hot year when you would have expected bleaching, like there was this big ocean heat wave, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes don't bleach as much. And it's something I've seen in the field work we do in the middle, in the central equatorial Pacific. And so we're testing that globally. That's what uh, Pedro and I have been testing globally. And then using what we learn from that, we can then look forward to the future and say, okay, what is the, what are the projection projections look like for the world's coral reefs? And can we use it to identify places that might be kind of climate refuges because um, I, I've been working on the subject for a long time and the forecast of the world's coral reefs is not good. Right. Yeah. So at this point, really the research in that world is being targeted at what are the exceptions, you know, and are there any th- interventions people can take to slow this? Because reefs are, are threatened even with just, you know, one and a half degrees of temperature. Right. Rise globally. The exceptions can tell you something about, well, under these conditions, like you said, cloudiness, um, there might be a little bit lower chance of, there might be a lower probability of, of bleaching. So the coral might be relatively safer. Yeah. That's really interesting. So this, this must be the, is this the interpolated bleaching probability database? I was just looking on your website here at it. uh, Zero point zero degrees. That's really, that's really fine. Spatial resolution. (laughs) Here to the ocean models that I run. That's really good. Yeah, well, it's um, the database. The yeah, so the database we have a ver- version of that's published and put that out in 2017, and we made it freely available. We want people to be able to use it. It mm-hmm. was sort of a, a like piece of work done for the community in a way, uh, and we've made a now we've came up with some better ways to scrape data out of the community. Um, partly by putting the database out there, let people know that somebody's collating all of this, and mm-hmm. um, uh, but we also came up with some better better techniques, which is what the Alejandro I mentioned is working on better techniques for interpolating the reports. So it's actually, it's really interesting. I mean, if you think about 
uh, like a disturbance in nature, right? Whether it's a forest fire, you know, windstorm uh, knocking down trees or a bleaching event, right? How big it is, is hard to identify. Usually when you look at a map, you, you know, you'll see, if you look at a map in the newspaper of where there've been forest fires, they'll have a little fire symbol on a map <laughs> somewhere, but mm-hmm. you won't necessarily know the full extent of the fire. And they can estimate it, but we don't have like exact, maybe with satellites, you could kind of get an answer, but an exact idea of the total scale. That is an enormous problem with anything that happens underwater because bleaching reports, you know, are mostly going to come with a couple exceptions are mostly coming from underwater surveys in Australia. They're able to do aerial surveys of the Great Barrier Reef, but mostly Mm -hmm. it's underwater surveys and they're not hard to do. You can only swim so far when you're scuba diving. (laughs) So We'll, again, even in our work uh, in uh, the Republic of Kiribati and Central Equatorial Pacific, like, I feel like we have a good idea of what's happening in all the reefs of the atolls we study. But, we're, you know, we're doing transects that are 50, 100 meters long mm-hmm. and the islands, you know, many kilometers long. So mm-hmm. we're not actually seeing every piece. So the question becomes, how do you interpolate? If you only have data from some locations, how do you interpolate? Uh, something that, you know, you have to deal with weather, with weather station data as well. Our weather stations aren't, and you know, we only have so many and then they're not evenly distributed. So we don't have, there's no international system that makes sure for every one kilometer of reef, somebody's doing a survey. And so what we found in collecting this data is that you have this spatial problem that a report will say at this location, like a, you know, GPS coordinate that was bleaching, but we don't know like how far from that exact location, that Mm. point we should say bleaching occurred. And the other thing is that there's an incredible spatial bias in where people do surveys. So in some parts of the ocean, in Australia, in the Florida Keys, there's an incredibly large amounts of surveys. And then there's whole swaths of the Pacific where there's reefs that aren't monitored. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done by take, we have like a raw database and the, the original version is available on my website, the raw observational database, which is just here are the coordinates where people saw bleaching and here are the dates or months that they saw it. In times. And what we then take, we take that data, we convert it to an equal grid. And so we like sort of grid the world and say in each cell of the grid, did anyone report bleaching? And then we'll say, okay, we're going to call that cell bleaching. And then we just use spatial analysis to say, well, if you have a lot of clusters of them in here, in this set, in one set of grid cells, it means in the neighboring grid cells, there's a pretty good probability of this bleaching. And there's statistical techniques for doing this. And so that's how we come up with this sort of interpolated map for the world. And, uh, and there's versions of that available on my website. And we're just making a, a, what Alejandro and I have been working on is a much more um, advanced version for sort of version two of the database. That's great. I was just going to ask you also about this uh, indi- indicator creaking. I think that's how you say that. Right? I've heard people say creaking uh, before that you mentioned that that's how you do the spatial modeling. I'll just read this little bit. So the sure. probability of bleaching occurrence in a given year between 1985 and 2010 was spatially modeled across the world's warm water coral reefs at the 0.04 degree latitude longitude resolution using indicator creaking. Um, and I guess when I, when I hear that term, I almost think of when people are trying to build these statistical relationships between variables, right? That there's a process of trying to figure out what, the, what those relationships are. I guess part of what I'm trying to get at is, you know, you 
when we're modeling and representing these things, there's a kind of physics-based approach, you know, physical using heat. Mm. And then there's also the statistics-based approach. And I was trying to get a little bit of a sense of, um, you know, how much of the the connections that you are building between the variables in your database are based in that physical modeling versus how much of it is statistical modeling. It sounds like there, there's a bit of both, like you would expect. No, it's a, actually, that's a really good question. And in case for those of you uh, listening who don't deal with like geographic data all the time, 0.4 degrees is about four kilometers. And so we mm-hmm. often say four kilometers. Is, it's not exactly, but we often yeah. say four kilometers yeah. just as a short form. Um, you know, it's a really, no, Dan's, your question is really good. So integrated Kriging is just, it's like a method of like spatial statistical correlations, basically. I'm not actually an expert in it at all. Mm. I'm, I'm the sort of person that, uh, my, like most of the science I've done has been sort of identifying gaps between fields. So mm. it's like, okay, we have bleaching reports, but they're not complete, but it's because nobody's doing spatial analysis and then finding people who understand how to do that. Hmm. and working with it. So, uh, so it's by no means my expertise, but it's something really common in um, spatial analysis and geographical information sciences. And, and really like for precipit, like rainfall maps, hmm. right? I mean, Krieging is one of the techniques it's used to say, okay, we have point results. We have like weather stations that have rainfall in a bunch of individual locations. How do we go from there to say what the rainfall was in between those stations? Mm-hmm. And so it just basically Krieging looks for a space is a statistical technique to look for um, a spatial pattern between the data and you basically fit a statistical model to it. So it could be, you know, linear, linear, et cetera, exponential, et cetera, and then use that model to then um, calculate the probability, the, uh, the, likely value for all of the different locations you don't have information. In our case, the way we're doing it is making it probabilistic. So we have the observed map that I was talking about, uh, which is just here are the points where bleaching was observed. And it's literally an Excel file. You can just download (laughs) that and and map it yourself if you'd like. Um, And then we have the spatial interpolation where we've converted the data to a grid. And we've done this interpolation using uh, this particular Krieging method and it is Krieging is the way I say it too. Hopefully that's, hopefully we're both right or we're both wrong. Maybe I don't yeah. know. <laughs> we'll <laughs> and, find out. <laughs> yeah. And, and so in between, and so what you get out of that is a probability. So the map isn't saying the map we produce isn't saying hundred percent. We know bleaching happened in these locations, but based on the spatial distribution of the observed reports, this is the likelihood that this location or grid cell in this case, mm-hmm. uh, four kilometer by four kilometer grid cell also had, um, bleaching in it. And we, you know, we do this using a, also using a map of where coral reefs are in the world. So we don't obviously project bleaching in places where there are no corals. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's yeah. really, that's been the technique. And so there's no, it, it's physical modeling in the sense that what you arrive at is based on the spatial pattern of observations. And those observations are almost always related to the pattern of unusually warm ocean temperatures that year. Hmm. Right. So, so we'll make a map of it every year, but it what was really key in doing this work. And, and this is a little bit of uh, um, almost kind of insider stuff, uh, but I'll explain anyways. What was really key about this is that we don't use the physics of what was going on in the real world to inform the map. So hmm. we don't take the ocean temperature data to try to distribute out the map. Instead, all we did was we took, um, all of the locate each year, the model takes all of the locations where there was no heat stress at all. So if there's like a baseline for what the average summer's like, if temperatures never pass that baseline, 
we count that grid cell as what we would call a pseudo absence. Hmm. So it's a way of saying that it's really unlikely bleaching happened if the temp- if it was colder than normal. Okay. Okay. So we can use that as a way of saying, well, we know we think this grid cell is somewhere that is a no bleaching grid cell. And then we can use that to inform the model, but we don't take the actual temperature values other than that. And the reason is we want this to be as close to just an observed map as possible so that we can use it to test the effect of, you know, different ocean temperatures and everything on the likelihood bleaching occurs. And if we mm-hmm. used ocean temperatures that define the map, it no longer is really just based on, on, on biological observations and, um, yeah. I mean, in a sense, it's, it's got some similarities, I guess you could say in a little bit to like a reanalysis data set for people who do climate work. Um, except that we're not really using like the physics of what's going on in the world to define the map. That's really interesting. I've wanted to reassure you, we've got a pretty nerdy listener group. So they're, <laughs> they're going to like that. They're going to like the stuff. It's good. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I am a nerd as well. So I mean that in a loving way, that's not a negative comment about nerds. <laughs> yeah. we, we all are. That's, I mean, listen, we all got into this because we're, we like math and physics, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, you mentioned your work in the Republic of Kiribati. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Obviously, I guess you probably haven't been this year, uh, I'm guessing, but, uh, or maybe, maybe you have, maybe you found a, a good, a good way to do that. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, can you just tell me a little bit more about your, your work and kind of recent, some recent or highlight kind of experiences there that you'd like to share with people? No, sure. I'm ha- happy to. Uh, first thing I'll say is, no, we haven't been there this year. It, mm-hmm. it, uh, it's uh, Kibas. It's not pronounced anything like it looks oh, yeah? on paper. The mm-hmm. R sounds a little bit like an L and mm-hmm. the T and the I is pronounced as an S, which is weird historical reasons for that. But uh, mm-hmm. the island chain we work in is called the Gilberts. And what happened is when the country became independent in the 1970s, they took the colonial name Gilberts and used the local pronunciation of it as the name of the country. And so Gilberts, if you come from a culture that didn't really have R's and didn't really have T's, sounds like Kilbas. And that's oh. where the name of the country came from. Okay. It's very, it's, it's just in case you're curious. So we haven't been there this year. Uh, I am delighted for all of my colleagues and friends there that it is one of the only countries in the world that does not have a single case and has not had a single case of COVID. Yeah. So I imagine well, obviously not- we're not going, it wouldn't be, they wouldn't allow it and no, we wouldn't go anyways. No. Cause I, we, from the beginning, we canceled our trip even before any announcements were made because mm-hmm. we just thought we can't be responsible for this. Like, so, yeah. um, so that's it. So my work there is, um, you know, like everything in science, it, uh, partly planning, partly a fluke. Mm. I, when I was a <laughs> postdoc, uh, working with uh, Michael Oppenheimer at Princeton, I, uh, took a break for a few months from my job this somewhat suicidal career wise at the time. And because I had been working on climate questions and uh, modeling, you know, modeling work for a long time. And I felt like I was losing the connection to the real world to some degree in the work we did. And I had started this work on climate change and coral bleaching. And I was really interested in just getting a little bit more in touch with, with things on the ground in different parts of the world. And so I arranged to just like travel around for five, six months um, mm-hmm. in Pacific Islands, Australia and Indonesia to talk to people and ask questions about like sort of real world impacts and experiences with climate change. And in planning it, I really wanted to uh, visit um, an atoll country that is, you know, under threat from sea level rise. And I was thinking about this 
And then on the International Coral Reef email list, there was an email from somebody in Tarawa, the capital of the Gilberts, uh, the capital of Caribbean and, and the uh, in the Gilberts Island chain, saying they just uh, witnessed a bleaching event and uh, just wanted to report it to everyone. But we don't have any expertise in it. And I emailed them and I said, you know, I do work on this. If I came to visit, could we talk? And they're like, absolutely. And so I had no funding. I just, I paid myself. I just went and I uh, ended up writing a report about their bleaching event for NOAA. Um, which helped me get, um, get out of debt slightly from doing taking the trip. Mm. And that just sort of led to this sort of long-term relationship. I don't run like a, an exact, I wouldn't call it a field program exactly. Mm. Like we don't have a, an office there or anything, but I have long-term relationships with the local government that, and I've worked on um, a, an adaptation project that the World Bank ran for a number of years in Kiribati. Mm. And so the research sort of just flourished in a whole bunch of different directions uh, partly because if, to me, it just became, if you're going to go that far, um, make use of your time. Uh, it's not easy to organize to go there. Um, and also it became clear that, you know, scientists working in developing countries, but particularly in like small island states, there's a lot of people going to collect their science and then taking it home with you mm. and not a lot of of giving back, so to speak. And right, so right. Uh, I won't claim I knew what I was doing at the beginning, and I may not still know now, but I've just sort of made a decision at some point that like I have a good, my career is going fine anyways, like in terms of the modeling work and that I can make a point of let's try to uh, do some field work that is good for science, but also is good for local folks. And so it led in a whole bunch of different directions. So we do, we're tracking changes in the reefs over time. Um, we've been doing, uh, we did an interview based research on decision-making around sea level rise. And then when we go, I work with, uh, uh, with, local folks in the government there and we do some training. I mean, I learn a lot from them. It always makes me laugh to think that I'm training them because I feel like I learn more from them than they learn from me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and we give our data back, we present to the government and I'm in, in contact with folks. And so it's been really, it's been uh, just incredibly valuable uh, for me personally, just in terms of perspective on the world. Yeah. yeah. I was, I've, uh, often near the end we ask a series of questions about you know what have you learned but this sounds like a great time for like me to ask i don't know what what are some things you learned in that experience i mean it sounds like it was really you know enriching and i imagine it shifted your perspective and or informed your perspective is maybe a better way to say it um are there things that surprised you when about working with you know an island in a a whole country like you mentioned and perspectives that surprised you that maybe uh you, you, well, I was about to, I was about to say pers- that th- surprised you that you weren't expecting, but that's redundant. A surprise is something <laughs> you're not expecting. <laughs> no, it's a good question, and uh, there's a whole science to why we work, why that's an important location to study what's happened to coral reefs because of El Nino and everything. And we can talk about that. But in terms of just perspectives, you know, listen, I I went there like Kiribati has had a run, and Tuvalu, a neighboring country. Uh, They've had a run, they had a run for about a decade of journalists and activists from around the world visiting and trying to like tell their story. And to some extent, I was that same person when I first went, you know, I was sort of naive, I was naive about what I'd been to the Pacific Islands before. So I wasn't completely naive about that, but I was naive about what the particular country was like, what the culture was like and what the experience of people were like. So, you know, what happens is people in our part of the world that you're in the um, UK, I'm here in Canada you know, climate change for so many of us has always been, even for scientists, feeling a bit distant or psychologically distant, as mm-hmm. Catherine Hayhoe would say. Um, 
or physically, you know, because it's like the worst impacts are happening somewhere else in the Arctic, which is part of my country, but far from where I live, right? Or in the middle of the Pacific Islands and the coral reef. And there's this sense that because we live in, you know, the developed world, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, that we're somewhat more insulated, that we can afford to adapt, not to the worst effects of climate change, but, but to some, right? And so there's this thing that like, we want to go and see it. Like, if you really want to see climate change, you have to go to Tuvalu or you have to go to Kiribati or you have to go to the Marshall Islands, right? And so I was kind of in that mode. I was doing modeling work on what's happening to the world's coral reefs and the world's oceans. And I just didn't feel like I was connected with it. And it's like, well, I need to go somewhere where it's vulnerable. And you know, I could have gone to the Jersey shore. The ocean was right there. I didn't live that far from it being in Princeton. Um, But I was like, no, 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 I should go to these islands in the Pacific. And what I really took home from it is that the image that's presented of the Pacific islands to the rest of the world, and, and really just to say a vulnerable, quote unquote, vulnerable small island states is a really Western image. Like it doesn't, doesn't describe what it's really like there. For sure, they are threatened by sea level rise. It is, and it is existential. Not that the islands are going to disappear, but that they be, could, could become sort of prohibitively expensive to live in, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that people have no sense of resilience. And, and it just, and so my perspective really changed. And so I spent a lot of time, I've written, I wrote articles about, for Scientific American about this, and I give tons of talks about this. Um, about not taking the viewpoint you have from your part of the world and assuming something about, about other parts of the world's experience, with, experience specifically with the climate. And uh, uh, I always think about the, the friend of my friend and colleague of mine there, his name is uh, Eriotera Ram. He, uh, somebody from the fisheries department that I worked with, he's, um, was giving a, uh, a speech at a banquet a few years ago that we were at uh, two years ago that we happened to be at and banquet is the word uh, that my colleagues would use. It's not what you think uh, listeners here probably think a banquet is, uh, just to be clear. And he was getting everybody in the audience to, to chant this phrase. Now, the whole thing is in the local language, so it wouldn't have been understandable. But, you know, I could pick out every, you know, 1,000th word I would recognize from my time there. And there was one thing, he just kept repeating it. And afterwards, he got people to chant it. So afterwards, I said, you know, why were you asking them to say this? What did it mean? And he said, and uh, the saying, if I get it right, it's, it was a Sitang Matai Tu, which he's, you know, Eotera's translation was, um, you can cry, but then you have to get up. And he was applying (laughs) it to how much work they had to do in their jobs Mm. at the government. But then we, he and I, you know, talked about it. He said, but that's, that's the spirit to me. He's like, that's the spirit of the culture here. You can cry, like, but that's then you not have to get at all the image you get internationally when you hear about climate change, right? You think mm-hmm. it, it, this not at all how stories are told or anything. And so I've sort of made my my uh, you know sort of mission on the side of all of my work is to try to represent, you know, that these aren't these people aren't narrative devices. They're real people. They have yeah. real experiences. And climate change isn't the only thing they think about. They worry about educating their kids. They worry about healthcare. And everything. Yeah. And in many ways, their experience is not as different from ours as you might think. Yeah. So the Western narrative to, to overgeneralize kind of takes away their, their agency a little bit and says, oh, well, it kind of portrays people as relatively helpless. And, oh, we, you know, we have to go save them as the wet in air quotes. And that that's oversimplifying the situation greatly. And like you said, it discounts 
people's resilience and people's robustness and you know willingness to to tackle the challenges uh, that that exist and uh, you mentioned that scientific american article the uh, one on climate determinism right where and i thought that was a really nice piece i read that just um earlier today in preparation for our our interview i was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit it's connected to what you were saying um that being said is there anything else about your experience there that you wanted to talk about? I don't want to rush you along too fast. No, no, it's quite right. I mean, I can't say there's all sorts of science we do, but I Mm -hmm. will point out that, um, you know, I think everybody's research career path is different. And uh, that decision to take a few months off during my postdoc when I should have been applying for faculty jobs, like literally people are saying, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Was uh, I thought, I thought I was crazy at the time, but it was, and it did derail me for a while, but it was easily looking back the best decision I ever made career-wise because you need to go out and get those perspectives. And so the fact that, you know, I, I, I now do uh, work that I guess you would really call social sciences in addition to the sciences and everything, it came from going out and seeing things and realizing there's other questions to ask that like the scientific data wasn't enough. And, uh, and that really came, I mean, I owe people, friends and colleagues in other countries for sort of showing me that. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like it gave you, you know, a broader kind of base to work from like a broader platform to work from. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that that's really good. That's good career advice. And uh, that th- those um, we sometimes on this show talk about how people's pathways into science usually is a function of interest and opportunity mm-hmm. and you know, in this case, you had a very unique opportunity that you took and uh, that ended up informing your whole career path, which is awesome. So the, the climate determinism article. So I thought, um, so this came out a few months ago um, and it was right in the middle uh, or very close to um, the, you know, kind of protests around uh, race issues in the, in the States and elsewhere. And um, uh, George Floyd, um, k- k- killing and um, so I, I'm just going to summarize it quickly for people who, who haven't read it yet but they should go read it because it's really good um, so you reminded the reader or you brought up this long ugly history of a you know racially motivated uh, thinking that asserts that uh, climate determines everything about a society right that this is an old um, you know uh, ugly racist idea that um, that climate influences human intelligence and social development, and it has a, unfortunately like a really long history going all the way back to and probably probably earlier I don't know but you can trace it to you know Greek thought where uh, ancient Greek thought where they place themselves naturally at the well this is the correct latitude that a person should be at and if you're not at this <laughs> latitude then you're either going to be uh, you know, you're going to be lazy or you're going to be uh, full of energy, but not that smart. That's how they cast it anyway. And you were pointing out that this kind of thought, it's still here. It's still with us. You know, it, it's people don't say overt things like that very much anymore. Um, but we have to be really careful about making sure we don't kind of propagate that idea that, you know, people are in hot climates or somehow lazier or, or have some other negative characteristic right it's a it's it's kind of a form of racism isn't it? it's racism that's you know latitude latitude a function of latitude <laughs> um, so the 
I don't have any specific questions about it, but I just thought, um, and uh, it would be a good conversation starter if you're happy to talk about it. We can. Yeah, no, yeah. I absolutely am. Um, no, I think I, thanks for reading the article. It was. It's it's not there. There's you know there's other uh, places this has been written about the history of climate determinism, but I don't feel like it gets outside of. Uh, you know, sort of arcane bit of the client, the academic world. Mm. Uh, and certainly doesn't get connected to, to, to today very much. Although there's mm. a few scholarly articles that do that. Um, it's something I've, it, but it's something I've been interested in for a long, uh, the questions for a long time. I, some of it is just the sorts of things I like to read uh, history and whatnot. Um, the main reason and what that article came from is, is basically I've been working on a book for a long time and mm. that, that the issue of the history of climate determinism is part of the book. Uh, what what I'm effectively writing about is sort of the history of our relationship with the climate, how it's changed Ooh. over time. Well, and that brought me to reading about, well, where does the word climate come from? You know, from mm-hmm. the Greek word clima. And what's interesting was you try, tra- when you trace back the history, as it sort of mentioned in the article, that climate was effectively used as a sort of tool to put down people of other races, right? right. So a way for the right. Greeks to say they were, they had a more enlightened society than the dark-skinned people to the south, and so it's not to say that the the concept of climates wasn't legitimate, but it was how it was used, hmm. and then that perpetuates that goes on well, and you know that it was started by the Greeks, and then you see echoes of it, really strong echoes of an enlightenment, some really interesting things between the quote-unquote new world and old world, so from Europe and the Americas, where. Um, where the fact that the the Americas have more variable climate, you know, North America has a more variable climate than Europe does, than than Western Europe does, was, you know, the extremes of hot and cold, the really sharp extremes of hot and cold and the really humid summers was bad for the intellect and these mm-hmm. things would happen, which was used both to put down the indigenous peoples of North America, but interestingly enough, also the colonists. So <laughs> after, you know, so it's it's really and so and I've heard uh, people, what I was sort uh, of pointing out in the article is that the you see the, you know, the contrails of this still today. Mm-hmm. And the reason the, to me that it connects to today, and this is the thing I hadn't seen written about quite as much is, is because, you know, just this fluke where I've, you know, um, uh, you know, rare Canadian, you know, <laughs> Canadian Jewish person that ended up spending a lot of time in small Island Pacific nations mm-hmm. with very different cultures Places where the rest of the world, particularly the developed world and the Western world, has an idea of what their lives are like. And it's not what their lives are really like. Mm. And I was like, well, where does this come from? Why do we assume these people have no resilience? Mm. Because the resilience isn't just oh. about like physical infrastructure, having buildings and everything. It's about culture and all these other things. And so there is this whole history of the way Pacific Islanders and people in the tropics uh, are thought of that has where you know, the hot climate makes you quote unquote lazy. The notion in, in scholarly circles, they call it tropicality, that idea. And, um, and I just, you know, so I started thinking about how the, um, this idea of tropicality that you can still sort of see a bit today, you know, really started thousands of years ago and in, in yeah. like, you know, with Hippocrates. <laughs> so, and so I just wanted to bring that up, you know, when George Floyd's murder happened, you know, my research group, as as many were, we were talking about about uh, anti-racism and race issues. I have some uh, some wonderful graduate students who think about this stuff a lot and write about it. And we uh, were talking about it and it just got me thinking, you know, I've been writing about all this stuff on the side without sharing it with anybody because I'm trying to do it for a book. But this is actually timely. 
And so I contacted an editor, uh, Mark Fischetti, who's great at Scientific American that I know, and said, hey, would you be open to, this is going to sound strange, uh, but a, a piece on this. Yeah. I always forget that you can contact editors and ask them in advance. <laughs> if they well, like. not with, with, with scientific journals. I don't think it works the no, same way. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> so in that article, you have some, some phrases that it thought were really striking. You know, one of them was that well-intentioned efforts to document and spread stories about the inequalities of climate change inadvertently call up implicit climatic biases. So by the inequalities of climate change, I suppose you're referring to, we mentioned it already, the idea that a low-lying Pacific Island is probably under more immediate threat from climate change than, um, you know, 52 North somewhat inland here in England, although it's relatively low lying here. Actually, the, the okay. fins just north sure. of here are, are not, are kind of, kind of swampy and kind of low lying. So actually there's some threat from inundation from the, the north, but the, the point still stands, right? That we're still remote from um, yeah. some of those immediate impacts. And I guess another part of the inequality there is that, and this is talked about a lot, that the developed world, you know, we're responsible for, most of the emissions, the CO2 emissions, um, and yet the some of the countries which will face some of the more immediate and the biggest impacts uh, really haven't contributed that much at all in terms of, of CO2. Are, are those some of the inequalities that are, are behind that statement or... Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great, great question, Dan. I guess I probably wasn't uh, that specific about what I meant by the inequalities in the article, but the, yeah, there's the core inequality of climate change, which is, which is that uh, developed countries throughout history are responsible for most of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Certainly when you think of it cumulatively, right. Mm. And um, which is what matters for the climate. Mm. And um, but, you know, developing nations, particularly like um, the low lying nations, whether it's small Island States or it's Bangladesh, are we suspect going to feel more, more of the effects of climate change? And then added into that inequality is the idea of like who has the greater capacity in terms of technical capacity, you know, in terms of resources uh, to adapt is also potentially this big inequality. And I want to be clear, like that, that that's motivated a lot of my research. It's motivated the reason I first started working in the Pacific islands mm. and, and, you know, first was visiting and interviewing people and um, I think it's very real, but I also think it's dangerous how we talk about it sometimes. So we have to be careful because it does tap in a little bit to this thousand year old history of assuming mm -hmm. that people in the tropics are less capable, right? Which is, right, which is the, this, you know, sort of ancient, you know, notion, which we all disavow, but which I think leaks into our discourse mm -hmm. and and so the place I've seen it the most is because being one of the few uh, scientists that's worked regularly and has a relationship with people in Kiribati, I for years was just like inundated with requests from journalists and filmmakers who wanted to make a film there saying like, who should I talk to? What should I do? And what became really clear was that they had much like I did when I started this notion of like these poor suffering people. And that was the story they were going to tell. Right. And if you actually spend time, I mean, obviously, you know, there's diversity within Kiribati, but if you spend time with Kiribati people, Kiribati families for a long time, you know, resilient is the only word you would use to describe. Them. <laughs> I mean, and it's, you know, if you really think about it, it's amazing that like people from where, you know, part of the world uh, where, where I live or where you live would feel that um, 
a culture that has managed to eke out and thrive, you know, thrive really on atolls in the middle of the ocean with very little land where you can grow like three, you know, where you can barely grow any crops and have, and, and see themselves as wealthy because of the benefits of the ocean that they have around them. Um, it's crazy that we would be thinking these people aren't resilient yet that has leaked into our language. And so I think we need to appreciate that history's probably played a role in this, right? We can't ignore, you know, we need to accept the fact that there's this long legacy that's very colonial about the way we talk about the tropics. Uh, and so that's really what I was getting at. And I'm just sort of warning people because there's so much, particularly in the wake of um, the, you know, the black lives matter movement and, and, uh, great and important talk about anti-racism. There's so much talk about climate justice these days. And I think some of it is terrific, but some of it is, you know, and this is unintentional, but it's actually playing into stereotypes. Hmm. Right. And so there's a, it, there's a fine line where it's well-meaning. Like we're trying to support um, people that we think are more vulnerable to climate change, which is wonderful and well-meaning, but also might have some embedded assumptions in it. So sometimes right. even the things that are intended to be about equality, about anti-racism are actually making assumptions about the other people. That's a really good point. Yeah. And I'm kind Not of, everyone likes me it. saying this. I'll say, wow. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, what, what do they object to? I mean, what's the, if you don't mind digging into that, um, I can't play devil's advocate because I'm not <laughs> familiar with the argument, but with the, but um, what do you hear them saying? And uh, does it, or, um, well, I, I don't know how to frame that up. Just yeah. Well, no, one is, but... one is just that like, you know, oh, this is too academic. You don't know what you're talking Like just, mm. just um, in a way that I'm saying, I think the pushback, if I've gotten it, has been from people, uh, from from folks who really want to see action on climate change, as I do, and feel like if this is going to help us get towards action, that's what matters. Mm. Okay. And so like, so the, that article I wrote, and then I wrote one, uh, uh, like a longer feature in scientific American about my experiences working in Kirbis over the years, which, um, which I think, you know, I got a bit of a similar reaction to some people in the science mm -hmm. community that, you know, in the activist community for sure is like, why are you making it seem like these people are resilient? That's not part of the narrative. And I'm like, because the Western narrative has a damaging influence in Kiribati. And in fact, my graduate student, Sophie Weber, who's a human geographer, one of her thesis chapters was about this idea that uh, countries like Kiribati, and this, we think we have decent evidence for this, kind of have to perform the vulnerability because they've huh. been portrayed on the international stage as vulnerable. They then have to go to UN climate conferences and say, mm -hmm. look how vulnerable we are. And oh, that wow. that has, if you, you know, there's a bit of a, a method acting scared of that. If you do that so much, you start to actually become vulnerable as a result. And in the, in the early article, I think it was in 2015, I wrote about some examples where um, you can see that like that the outsiders coming in and constantly saying people are threatened by climate change led people to say, well, climate change must be the reason for this. I can't do anything about it, hmm. which is not like, you know, doesn't fit the national ethos. Of resilience. There, right. And yeah, so that's what I'm just yeah. pointing out that like we might accomplish something for our goals of of uh spreading word about climate change, but you might be doing it in a way that's actually hurting people elsewhere. Yeah. And yeah. And so like are you know, is it fair to call these people collateral damage in the effort to push climate action? And I'm like, I don't think so. We're supposed yeah. to be doing it for them. 
Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> right? Yeah, like it's, it's really, totally. <laughs> it's a really excellent point. And also what I like about your approach and what I'm responding to is, uh, you know, I, I do have a kind of scientific brain in the sense of, well, I want our descriptions to be accurate. <laughs> I want our narratives and things to reflect, you know, what we actually see in reality. So if you have a narrative, you go somewhere, you find out the narrative's false. Well, let's revise the narrative and let's change that. And, and that, that is Dan, that, I mean, that was a hundred percent my experience. So I went yeah. there and I'm like, whoa, this isn't really what I expected. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I'm a scientist. I'm going to, you know, use the the new data. I'm not to update my expectations, yeah. to update my, what I think. Yeah. Use the new information. Yeah, exactly. Update your prior assumptions. Exactly. Bayesian and, uh, thinking. That's the process. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know, the Gaussian's not over here. It's over here. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a really excellent point. And I thought of a, a couple of parallels along the way, um, of some of the things you mentioned. And I'm not an expert on this, so I'm not going to dwell on it or dig in in much sure, depth. Sure, no worries. But, you know, I, I believe there have been um, in the U.S., um, you know, in relation to um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and that longer history of racism there. Um, I, I wish I could think of a specific example, but I think there have been times when there's been like a potentially well-meaning set of um, actions and things, but that maybe were influenced a bit by that that narrative that you're talking about, mm. the narrative of mm. like, oh, these, these folks are helpless, um, which, you know, is... It, it robs the agency away from that community and it makes, puts a lot of assumptions onto them and it can have this negative effect like you're talking about. And that's, that's such an important thing to, to get right. Um, and I guess I don't know how you, I guess one way to move towards getting it right more often is to make a real effort towards seeing people as people and seeing people as full complex humans um, as opposed to just narrowing them down to, you know, an old stereotype, a race stereotype, a climate-based stereotype um, is to try to allow for that full, full human complexity that's on display there. Um, no, it's a great, I, um, that is a great way of putting it. Honestly, I, I won't claim that I know the solutions to these things. Um, sometimes I just put it out there because I think people should be thinking about, you know, I think it's important for people to think to pay attention to, and that hopefully you know, all of this just comes down to being a reminder that these people we talk about in other parts of the world, they're people and they think just like you and I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and really, I feel like that's like the, the big lesson. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. I think one of the last phrases you had in the article was something like, yes, let's spread the word about the inequalities of climate change, but let's check our implicit biases before drawing conclusions about people living in different places. Um, so thanks for writing that article. I'm glad you did. I'm glad it's out there in the world of people <laughs> Thanks, should, Dan. should go check it out. Um, yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your pathway into to science. You've mentioned bits and pieces of it along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, where'd you, first off, how are you for time? You all right? Um, what, what's your, sure. I don't know what time it is actually. Let me tell you uh, quickly. Yeah, I'm good. I'm yeah? good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so where did you grow up? So I'm from I'm from Toronto, Ontario, um, Canada. So I am I am Canadian, and uh, I went uh, so lived for 18 years there, and I went to un, uh, went to undergrad uh, 
at McMaster University, which is in neighboring Hamilton. It's only mm-hmm. about a 45 minute to one hour drive away mm-hmm. from where I grew up, but to me felt like going somewhere. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I and, that. and I actually there, I was in basically like a small liberal arts program, sort of combination of arts and science, but my, I effectively did like a minor in physics. And that was my strength going up. I was good at math and physics. I was like the sort of geeky little kid that liked to do origami yeah. and do things that were sort of mathematically leaning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. And so that was where, sort of where I got started in this direction. Where's, uh, what were your folks up to at the time my, when you were growing up? Uh, my parents are, my mother was, my mother's trained as a nurse and then mm-hmm. went back to school and sort of worked in the field of nursing, but not as an active nurse. So she went back to school and became a, um, uh, like a professor teaching nursing and then ended up actually probably I would have been high school might've been in like junior high. My mother went back and did a PhD, ended up teaching nursing at the, you know, she ran a nursing organization for the province mm-hmm. then taught nursing at the university of Toronto and uh, at the end of her career. So it, it's interesting because, you know, she basically ended her career as an academic, but I didn't, I wasn't raised by an academic. She was mm-hmm. like a practitioner that, that must have been went into teaching afterwards. Yeah, yeah. That must have been interesting to be there and watch her have her own yeah. pathway, you know? And, yeah. And no, it's, it is, uh, and my father's, my father worked for himself is, is almost of his adult life. He's an econ- economist uh, and I like basically an economic consultant that worked for himself. Um, uh, but not doing, I think the sort of things you normally assume an economist does. He did mm-hmm. like macroeconomic work where it would be, you know, the, the cable industry in Canada is trying to figure out decisions they should make in the next 10 years based on where the economy might go. And he would write a report for them. Uh, and they, uh, I think one thing that had a big influence on me, they are both people that, that um, they, they both were people that were working on public issues and talked about them and wrote about them. Right. Nice, My mother nice. was for lifelong advocate for nurses and worked in healthcare policy and, and, you know, my father's an economist and, and wrote articles for um, for Canadian newspapers about the state of the economy and everything. And so they're very much sort of people that are sort of giving back to society. And I think that obviously had an influence on me. Um, I think all of that's not, there's definitely related to our being Jewish um, as well. Hmm. And so that, that had definitely had an influence on the sort of things I was interested in doing. I think probably seeing what was around me, the only difference being that I was much more scientifically motivated Hmm. And I don't know that my parents would say necessarily that they, that came from them. <laughs> <laughs> Should I picture big city, small town? What was your kind well, of Toronto's idea? a big city, right? So Toronto, uh, so you're in well, the city. Yeah, we're we're in uh, North Toronto, but uh, it's interesting. Growing up, I wouldn't have called it downtown, but the city's so big these days that people be yeah. like, "Oh, you live close to downtown." <laughs> so yeah, so I had a city existence, and as I got older, uh, you know, I was. Uh, lucky enough to, to grow up in a sort of middle and then later upper middle class family. And, um, as we, uh, uh, right before I got into high school, uh, my fam, my, uh, folks based on like sort of lifelong planning bought a cottage and that had a, a place outside the city on a lake. And that probably had a, the biggest influence on me, um, on the type of research I do today in that I was always interested in exploring in the environment, but I was a geeky kid that was good at math and physics. And it gave me a chance to like, you know, get my sea legs a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think anyone when I was 10 years old as a, as a shy geeky kid would imagine that I would go off and start doing work in, in other cultures in, you know, uh, and do so quite comfortably, but that's because I sort of slowly worked my way up to it. You had this yeah. great natural environment that you could explore as a young kid. Yeah. It built up my guts it. basically. 
Mm. I was not a gutsy kid, but I sort of, I had a, um, a, a chance to, to experiment and get a little bit tougher, I think. Mm. Cool. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, being Jewish a couple of times. So I wondered if I could ask what part of your, how was that as part of your experience kind of growing up? Was that a big part of your life growing up or, uh, how, how did that, you know, shape your kind of view of things and how, like, I don't have a great sense for, you know, was there a big community there or did you feel like kind of isolated in that sense or? No, um, it's, it's, no? it's a good, it's a good question. It's something, uh, it's interesting. So I would say it had a huge influence on, on my life and the choices I made, but yeah. I wouldn't, I don't think I knew that until like a, a couple of years ago. Okay. Like, and so you've, you, you know, you, as you get older, you start to realize why you made the choices you made yeah. and uh, <laughs> for good and bad. And uh, no, it definitely had a it definitely had a big influence. We, uh, Toronto has a pretty large Jewish community and my, my you know, we grew up, I grew up in the sort of family where, uh, you keep everybody together. So whenever there's mm. a holiday, everybody was in, everyone in the family, even if they weren't getting along, you invite them over mm. and, um, and then friends of the family were treated as family. And so there were a lot there. It wasn't like, uh, like our home was busy all the time, but I, w- I knew a lot of adults. <laughs> you know, and a lot of other families as a kid, because that was, you know, if you're a member of the community, you came by um, on oh, okay. the holidays. And, uh, and so I think that had, that had a big influence on me, but I do really think that the type of the decisions about what everyone in my family, I think even like between outside of the nuclear family, I grew up in even just relatives around me, what everyone did, they definitely were influenced by the, you know, legacy of the people before us. Hmm. Right. My, my grandfather um, came to Canada on his own. Uh, my grandfather, my mother's side came to Canada on his own in the 1920s. He would have been 18. And hmm. then was, he had a sister here at the time, but the rest of his family was back in what they call the old country, which is hmm. effectively um, Poland and uh, hmm. Poland and Ukraine. And, you know, he, you know, event for obvious reasons, he never heard after a time, he never heard from the rest of his family again. Hmm. And that the legacy Hmm. of the Holocaust really then plays a really big role in what, you know, I think probably how my parents thought about how they wanted their family to be and things like that, because it's like, okay, you don't leave each other. Don't leave each other. Right. I mean, that was my grandfather's message. Um, He was a wonderful guy, but was sad because for his entire life, because he had left his family and then, Wow. You know, and then they were lost in the Holocaust. So, so I think it really did have an influence on sort of how we treat each other. And then I think it wasn't just sort of an immediate uh, having a tight knit group uh, growing up, but the idea that, you know, um, you defend people that need defending, you yeah. say something, if something needs to be said, like all this, all of the things you hear, the lessons you hear people saying they learn out of like enormous tragedies like that just sort of got passed down. And the interesting thing is that I don't know that we talked about it so much hmm. is it was just, it was acted upon. And then anyone who looks uh, externally at us could, can see it. But it's in the actions and how you treat each yeah. other and in the behavior and the way you, like you said, you always invite even the people you're upset with. They're always welcome to come over They're They're not excluded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not always, but, uh, okay. <laughs> but yeah. often. <laughs> yeah. No. And so, <laughs> so when I, you know, I think like a lot of us that, that are in uh, climate sciences, we, many of us got into this because of uh, interest, but also because of what our strengths were. You're strong at math and physics. That was me. I was strong at math and physics, but I remember in high school being clear, people saying you should go into engineering. And I didn't want to go into engineering. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it felt like I wanted to make sure I was connecting to like the big problems of the day. Hmm. And of course you can do that as an engineer. I don't think I realized it at the time, 
Absolutely. And I don't, you know, and, uh, you know, look back now and I'm like, well, I know where that came from. But when I was 17, I couldn't have told, I couldn't have told you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's really good. I'm trying to, I'm just soaking that in a little bit because that, that narrative or that idea of, yeah, we need to be, we're a, we're a community. We need to be a tight knit community and stick together. Um, is it fair to say like, because there's, there's some perception, like you said, that's not explicitly talked about, but of a common threat, right? There is like, Oh, there's, there's a, there's a, a, threat or something to, to deal with or a reason for us to stick together. Um, and I guess there are parallels between that and climate in terms of, well, yeah, we're all, you know, as a mm-hmm. human species, we're under the threat of the impacts of climate change. I don't know if I'm stretching the, you know, the no, loose I mean, connection actually, too far, but. I would say that is a little bit how I think about climate change, mm-hmm. right? It's the world's biggest collective action problem, right? Yeah. And we need to figure out how to solve this together or to motivate each other. Um, and everything the i wouldn't i don't know that i would say that we felt that uh growing up an external threat i mean one thing to to know is that you know the that uh my you know my grandparents would have grown up in a time where jews were not considered white people but hmm. uh but we certainly am and i had all the privileges of somebody growing up in a you know in in a white upper middle class family you know middle right, or up, right. and then really later in the years upper middle class family yeah, yeah uh and had all those privileges but it's an it but it is an interesting thing and i think other um uh, other uh, Jewish people would, would say something similar is that you have all the privileges, but you still feel a little bit like a minority because you don't mm. celebrate the same things as everybody else. Mm. And mm. you get this reminder a few times a year that you're not part of the, you know, that, that you're not part of the majority, right? right. even though from appearances you are right. So, um, but, and so by all means, like I had all the privileges that, that this was not, uh, you know, this was not a, a career that, uh, this is a career that was very well within the like understood as something I would be able to do uh, without obstacles. Right. Right. Like bias and prejudice. Right. So I was just reacting to something you said there because um, I've heard other Jewish colleagues of ours in the UK talk about how uh, um, they were actually contrasting the U S and the UK. And they said, well, in the U S actually, people do, there's a little bit of an effort to say, you know, happy Hanukkah and happy holidays and make it a little more general. Uh, but in the UK, it's, it's just Merry Christmas everywhere. It's just, just Merry Christmas. Oh, yeah. And so she was living here at the time, the person I'm talking about. And she said, well, it's not, it's not like she was offended or something. It's not like, but seeing Merry Christmas everywhere, it's just a reminder. It was, she said yeah, that it kind of was exactly just a it. reminder of like, well, don't forget. <laughs> you're not the dominant you're not not part of the dominant thing here yeah (laughs) (laughs) no that's exactly it it's you're not um listen i have had a very privileged life i couldn't by no means should i complain uh Mm -hmm. there's you know uh cultures in north america that are that uh do did not have the advantages that i've Mm -hmm. had over the years but that doesn't mean you don't get a a, you know reminders every once in a while that you know you're not one of us Mm -hmm. uh and uh but that's not it's not it doesn't have a major impact um, right life it's just a reminder yeah and that's kind of what the way that she put it as well and you know i i then on the rare occasion when i encountered somebody uh this uh, who complains about the whole happy holidays thing I, I bring that up as an example i'm like well look there's people who aren't doing you know 
<laughs> they're in different religions and stuff, and they have different cultural backgrounds. And we'd well, like you know, <laughs> you want them to feel welcome. <laughs> you want people. It's to feel funny. Like- <laughs> um, the the I always think about this that like it's I really you know it's nice they say they say happy holidays instead of instead of Merry Christmas. It's trying to recognize yeah. others, but sometimes where it can be done. Uh, around you know the the seasons of the christmas holiday parties whatever where it's basically still a christmas party but Mm. because they recognize it's not the right thing to call it it's called a holiday party and i'm like it's okay just call it a christmas party that's actually you know it just let us know that's what's happening and the jews and the muslims can decide not to come or whatever that's fine but don't pretend it isn't yeah just label it's okay label it clearly clear labels Be more inclusive if you want to be more inclusive, but label it clearly. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. So that, so we talked about your undergrad a bit, the, you said, you know, physics minor and then you, from your undergrad, you went on to, I forget, were we already at your, your master's? I forget. You went no, we from, didn't. I, well, I did a master's at, I went to Duke university for a master's degree, mm-hmm. which was actually a professional degree. And cause I just wasn't sure yet that I want to go, did I want to uh, like go PhD sort of research teaching sort of full-time like for good or did I want to sort of move into the working world in some way um not, not that we don't have jobs <laughs> this is yeah. still the working world um and uh I and so I did mean. that degree I took a break after that and uh did some sort of freelance work and stuff and then went and did a PhD at Wisconsin with John Foley who is now the director he's uh, now the director of Project Drawdown and that, and so my PhD work was quite different than everything I do today. Um, I was interested in, you know, I started off with like impacts of climate on the environment and climate, like atmosphere, biosphere interactions. And it led, because John's group was doing this like land surface modeling, comparing, um, integrating with like, uh, in, influences of land use change on the climate and vice versa, um, I went like the one step further from that to bring it to something aquatic because I was always interested in water and, uh, I did work on how um, nutrients get into the ocean from land mm-hmm. and the effect on the creation of dead zones. And so the, specifically the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And so um, I was, re- it was, I mean, it, I, John was fantastic. The research group was great. I, I really enjoyed it. So that's in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the work itself was basically like river and biogeochemistry modeling. And, uh, I learned a lot about that. I've taught it here, uh, for a number of years at UBC. Um, but when I finished, I was a little worried that I was sort of getting pulled away from what I had come to school, like decided to, you know, pursue a PhD to do, uh, because it really had veered into questions that were about agriculture to some degrees, which are important, but it wasn't my, you know, I felt I grew up in a city. I felt like a bit of a fraud writing about that stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was looking if I was going to continue on in academics, I was like, I need to figure out some sort of way to shift a little bit. And then I got the opportunity to work as a postdoc with Michael Oppenheimer at Princeton. Uh, Michael's, uh, and Michael's been a fantastic mentor all these years. And there he was just looking for people to work on the big question of what is danger with anthropogenic interference. And, you know, uh, what might, you know, what might we use to define temperature limits for the planet? And one of the possible motivators was that coral reefs are really threatened by climate change. Maybe we can use that as a marker for policy. And so that my proposal of Michael was like, well, if I come work with you, how about I spend half the time doing what I was doing for my PhD and half the time trying to answer, add to this coral reef question. And, uh, he and I, it just worked out. We had kind of a very similar philosophy that that's a good way to go about work. 
which is spend half your time on things you know will work and half your time experimenting on something new. Uh, and that led me into the coral work. And then I kind of just sort of spiraled out from there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, so like I wasn't that, actually yeah. trained in it for good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like you said in the beginning, you know, you think of a problem and then you go connect with the method experts, whether they're mathematicians or statisticians, and you get them to teach you a bit about how to use it. And then you apply it to a problem. Um, yeah. So I feel it's, yeah. that's it. And I feel like what I learned from my PhD, I mean, obviously, you know, I did as it was an atmosphere and ocean sciences. So although I wasn't using it in my research, I did all of the base, you know, fluid dynamics and mm-hmm. all the, the classic stuff we all study. Um, but also had the chance to learn a lot of biogeochemistry and mm-hmm. think a, a fair bit about like how you do climate impacts work. And so even though I didn't have be the first to admit, I didn't know much about coral reefs at the time. Um, the work that was being done at that point on like the climate change and the future of coral reefs was being done by coral reef ecologists mostly. And mm-hmm. there was some good stuff out there, but I just felt like there was this gap where, Oh, if somebody who just understood like how to think about climate model output mm-hmm. and what it means and scaling and everything mm-hmm. just stepped in the middle and said, let me take some of the coral reef expertise. Let me take some of the climate expertise. Let me work on that. That it might go somewhere. I didn't know that it would work, but it turned mm-hmm. out like that first thing I wrote is the, I think probably the most cited thing I've done. Mm-hmm. And so it, I thought it was going to be a one-off project. And then from there, I'm like, okay, there's more questions to answer here. That right. led to me thinking, I want to take a break and go to the middle of the, you know, go visit uh, places in other parts of the world. And it led me to thinking that we should really be focusing on El Nino um, as a way to sort of look at um, like how do reefs that are affected re- regularly by El Nino survive? Because if they have this like anomalous heat stress over a few years, heat stress that would kill a reef elsewhere in the world, why is it that there can be these thriving coral communities hmm. right on the equator in the middle of the Pacific? And so that sort of is the science question in Caribous that, that I got led to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really, is it, Again, you kind of highlighted how it's not random exactly, but how that opportunity that you had, it was very iterative. You know, you didn't have some clean plan right from the beginning. You you kind of received feedback along the way in terms of what you're interested in and what problems seem to be relevant and what seemed to be connecting with other researchers. Uh, So you've got, I don't know, I just like to emphasize the fact that, you know, Basically, very, very, very few scientists have like this clean vision where they say, no. you know, in 10 yeah. years, I will be X. And that's just not really how it, how it works. No, I would uh, say no. And that definitely is the case for me. Um, but I will say that like, you, um, you can't just take the, the thing I've learned is you can't just take the opportunities that are in front of you. Hmm. Because if you keep grabbing the things that are presented to you, you miss out on the things that, you know, the things that are possible on the outside. Yeah, And so um, I, I'm, lu- I, you know, I'm lucky and privileged to have had a lot of the opportunities to do these things, but some of it, I mean, I, I didn't make it happen. It, it wasn't, there was no, I didn't work for anybody doing coral reef research. I didn't work mm-hmm. for anybody that worked in the Pacific islands. I just thought I want to do this. I think I have something to contribute. And I tried. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And the, the, the secret to that for me was always having a piece of half of my work that I knew was sort of quote unquote safer. Mm. So that if the experiment fails, you haven't like risked your whole career. That's and right. So it just, it yeah. turned out to be, uh, I didn't know at the time, but actually turned out to be a good strategy. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That my first uh, advisor who was in astrophysics where I kind of started a bit, he described it as like a, a risk 
portfolio, you know, portfolio yeah. research, you get your low risk stuff, low risk, but um, also low reward in terms of possible impact is how he kind of put it. And then uh, high risk, the possibly higher impact is sort of how he thought of it. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, a low risk thing could still be high impact potentially, but I guess that's his broad point. And it sounds like it's similar to the point you're making about uh, don't put all of your eggs in the high risk, high impact basket because <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> then you're, you might be in a tricky situation. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So I wondered, um, so when, when did you start in your current post or I guess so you were in Princeton and then after Princeton, did, did you start in your, yeah. So I was in Princeton for, uh, oof, four and a half years, depending exactly how you count mm. the time that I took off. Um, and, uh, was a bit stubborn, uh, during my time there and that I, listen, I, I mean, I had a great experience in the different places I lived in the United States, but I I'm Canadian and I do know I'd feel bad more at home in a, if I was going to take a, like a sort of long-term or permanent mm. job, uh, in Canada. And so I was, I did apply for jobs in the U S but I really was focused on trying to find a job in, in Canada. And that's not easy to do if you're aiming mm. for like one of two cities. Yeah. Uh, and I lucked out and was able to find, um, uh, an opening here at, at UBC. And I moved here in 2008. I think actually I came, we're almost exactly 13 years to the day. Cause I remember I arrived on December 1st and I started in January. <laughs> and, uh, I remember that because when I was wrapping up things in Princeton, that was right around the time I had been to Kiribati the one time and I felt like there's, you know, I just felt like I'd opened up this whole world and mm. I wasn't trying to close the door. And <laughs> I had an, I was, I had the idea that, you know, that it would be great to sort of get more involved and to think about how, what we could do to like monitor the reefs there because of El Nino and everything and manage to um, work out to work with this world bank uh, climate change adaptation project but the only way it was going to work was like, if I like, I had to find some time to do it. And so I left Princeton, I think in like early October and then went to Kiribati for seven weeks. A friend of mine that I'd made there rented me like a house basically. And I stayed there for seven weeks and then flew back to um, Vancouver and then arrived here for good. So I don't know. I'm probably the only person in Canadian history to immigrate back to the country from Kiribati, but um, but it was it was a unique and unique way to get it move into a faculty job. Yeah, for sure. Achievement unlocked. For you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a it was a pretty um, uh, un, uh, crazy time, just in terms of like where do I put my things and, and just how to organize your life. But it, but it was definitely worth doing. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. There, there's a series of questions here near the end where, and we don't have to stop at any particular time. You know, I do have to other, leave at some point, so that's true. Yeah. Um, well, I, I didn't mean forever, but I just meant there's no like. <laughs> no, sure. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to rush anyone. So, I ask a set of questions about what you've learned in different areas, and we touched on things a little oh, bit. I like it. Um, what's something you've learned about science? Something that kind of surprised you. That surprised me about how it how it works and yeah i to me and and uh people know me will have heard me say this before but i think what i've learned is that science is about the journey and that's why i like it mm. and one thing i i've had the opportunity to travel a lot as say as so we talked about earlier here I, I sort of created that opportunity to um 
try to learn things from different cultures and bring them back to what I teach and what I write about and everything. And uh, for me, what I've always liked about travel is the journey, not the destination. I don't mind sitting on a train or a plane or whatever for hours, no matter how uncomfortable it is folding mm -hmm. my legs into the seat. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I think the journey is what matters. And I really feel that's what science is. It's about, we, we uh, focus particularly if you do a lot of communication so much on the findings and we don't talk enough about the process. Because what yeah. separates science from everything else, other ways of acquiring knowledge is that we have this kind of strict process we follow. And, uh, and it's not like I didn't, like we all learned that when we were young, but I don't think I really absorbed it until I got older. Hmm. And we kind of touched on what I feel like is one of the core elements of that process earlier, where it's that Bayesian thing where you have an idea, test it. And if the idea doesn't work, then revise the idea then change the idea. Um, you know, update your, update your thinking in line with new evidence. And that's only part of it. Of course, you know, the other parts yeah. are, there's some quantitative elements to it and there's the peer review element to it where you get other people to check <laughs> to make sure you're not deluding yourself. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that responding to evidence and being willing to say, I don't know is a big part of it. Um, and that that's to me, that's the process. That's the kind of yeah, I love functional that. core of it. <laughs> that I love that. It's the, um, the, the I mean, a way that sort of the beauty of it is that uh, we, uh, there's so much concern, particularly in North America, but the UK as well, today's world about partisanship and how hard it is for anyone to change their minds because of the information they're exposed to. And I think the beauty of science is it's actually about the willingness to change your conclusion. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You're testing it. And so I just, it, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's like a, just an amazing thing to me. Be open, be open, you know, exactly. the open minded and open hearted, um, which by the way is kind of, that's what you had to do. Um, you know, when you went to the, to the islands there that you had to be open-hearted about the possibility that you might be, that those old narratives might be stale. Um, I didn't know. Yeah. I had to, I had to face that though. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 There's, there's some parallels with like various, um, I'm going to stretch this too far. There's some parallels <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> there's some parallels with like meditative thought and, you know, with some, some old spiritual traditions of like, you know, being open to things as they are, as opposed to, you know, things as we think they should be <laughs> mm -hmm. being open to things like as they really exist and to not, don't, don't try too hard to force them into categories and to force them into our, you know, pre predefined notions. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a parallel there. So <laughs> what's, uh, what's something you learned about, this is a very different question, possibly less fun. Um, what's something you learned about academia about that whole you know, the academic machine and how it works, which is different from science, right? There's science as a process and then there's academia as a process, as a set of institutions and uh, functions and people. Um, I'll give, I'll answer this honestly and it's yeah. an unusual answer, but uh, that people like it mm. is surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the reason, but the reason I say that is I think uh, I have, I have like incredible respect for my job. I work in the public, you know, we, we work in the public sector, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and uh, as my colleagues in my department will attest to, I'll often be the one saying, hey, let's remember if we decide to do this, we are spending taxpayers dollars. Like I do think we have this, this is an incredibly lucky and privileged position and we owe the public for it, right? Yeah. Um, and, but I will say that like, I chose to do this for a living because it was a way to do, 
um, the things I enjoy, I enjoy. And the trade for that was that I had to be in a big institution. Mm, right, right. And I don't really like the institution. I don't really care that much about the academic accolades and all those sort of things. It's never really sort of been my thing. It doesn't mean accolades in general mean nothing to me, but I just mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, academic titles and everything never really mm-hmm. meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe because I grew up with a very, in, in an educated family. And so it didn't seem like a big deal. Perhaps that's why. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result, the thing that surprised me the most uh, was how much people were into being an academic because, you know, I just, I think I just stupidly assumed everybody thinks the way I do. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't say that as a criticism because like, what's incredible is that like how engaged um, people will be in trying to make the institution better. Hmm. And I did, it is something I really didn't think about. I just thought about my responsibility to the public. Hmm. I just didn't really think about let's make me about that stuff at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that's a different answer. I don't think anybody's given that particular <laughs> that particular answer before. Yeah, that is different. So, serving on committees, you know, filling out forms, you know, recommendation letters and things, you know, all that's part of that academic machinery. And yeah. uh, that, like you mentioned, there's a trade-off. You know, you get to do a job you love, um, yeah. but you know, the recommendation part that's not always so bad. We talked about that in the beginning, and I guess that leads me to was something you've learned about mentoring and being a champion for, for people. And we said how good it is. Um, has anything the, surprised you about it? Um, well, one thing I feel like I've learned, I, I had the, I, the big thing I learned about being in a different gear for everybody. And cool. that's a metaphor actually was given by like a leadership training seminar I was at once, but like, you know, for a gear shift on a car, like what yeah, gear you yeah. want to be in. That's good. And, but also I, I feel like I had really, uh, great mentors that helped me figure out how to mentor and, and what was great about them is how different they were. Hmm. And so, I mean, you know, my, my, um, John Foley, my PhD advisor is a wonderful mentor and a very supportive person. Um, everybody who knows him will say that, uh, uh, Michael Oppenheimer, who I worked for after, um, as a postdoc is wonderful. It's almost sort of the more like a handle, uh, fa- uh, family member could hmm. be more hands off, but still knew how to be hands off while not, while knowing he was there and cared about what you, you know, about you and what you were doing. And so I think I learned different styles from each of them. And what I was so beneficial for me to that is that there are times where some students need one style, some need another, and that you shouldn't choose based on what you want. Your job is to train these people. And so I need to figure out what is the mentorship I need to get this student to get what they want, mm-hmm. you know, oh, what to, really to they achieve. And that's been uh, something, um, I hopefully have gotten better at <laughs> in the recent years. But one thing, because of the nature of my work, I've supervised students with very different backgrounds, uh, both cultural, but also just academic like backgrounds, human geographers, social science students, and uh, like more physically leaning students, more bio, marine biology leaning students. And so I've had to appreciate what makes sense for their careers and not to try to force them into my model. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do if somebody's not really sure, you know, if they sort of, don't have a super concrete idea that maybe you're just more interested in an immediate opportunity. I guess that presents a challenge a, a bit. Um, I try to help them figure it out, actually. I mean, we talk mm. about it a lot. Um, I do also, I mean, that is something I think all of us who are university faculty get a lot of requests for graduate supervision. And it is, it even says it, I think on my website, one of the key things I'm going to ask you if you, if you, uh, uh want to talk about potential coming to grad schools, I'm going to ask you why you want to do it. 
And I don't look for a particular answer. So it's not like if somebody says they don't want to be a scientist, I'm going to say no. Uh, but I want to hear that they've thought about it. And it's just that, and it's having that sort of, I don't know, emotional maturity. It doesn't necessarily mean age. Right. 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 But just, you know, having really given a thought for like uh, where I want to be in life and recognizing that not everybody's been, had the same background and had the opportunity to do the same things. And we need to correct for that. Hmm. Oh, that's really good. That was good. Um, Sorry, my brain just ground to a halt. There's pretty, it's, it's late here. So I've, I'm slowing down. It's 630. I'm okay. <laughs> oh, I'm this, fine. This has been, we've been on for a while. So yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> what's something uh, about teaching? What's something you learned about teaching? I guess, especially this time, this uh, few months here, this year. Oh, teaching to me, it, it, the key thing, I feel like I learned this my very first semester and it was driven home this semester teaching online. Was it the most important thing is to let, the students understand that you care about them and what they're learning hmm. yeah. that everything else, like how you organize like being organized and everything and having good upfront prep so that they know what to expect. I mean, all of that is important. Um, but if you, the students are going to learn if you want them to, hmm. and you're really like saying, Hey, I'm, I'm on your side here. And, uh, and that's, that's sort of a big thing I can take home. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for all those those great answers. Um, I'm really cheating as a like a science podcaster because you know scientists are very happy to talk about what they do. In my experience, you know, we're very happy to talk, and I'm and I'm including myself in that. We're happy to talk yeah. about what we do. We're happy to talk about our pathway, and I think especially people who you know are professors or lecturers and spend a lot of their time engaging with people, and we get a lot of practice. In, <laughs> and being kind of relatively open with, with these things about people. So um, I, it's been a real privilege to talk to you and a real treat. And uh, I wanted to thank you again for being on and uh, for taking some time. I really enjoyed this. This has been like a very, this is a really nice episode of this podcast. And uh, oh, thanks, thanks so much, Dan. Thanks for creating it with me. We made it together. It's like a table. We put it together. So now, you know, I hope we're both, <laughs> I'm happy with the table. I think it's a great table. Um, Anything else you want to talk about or touch on? Uh, no, I just wanted to say that this was, uh, this was, uh, thank you so much for the conversation. This was really, this was really uh, interesting for me. I'm, you've had to listen to me blather on for a long time, but I'm mm-hmm. always interested in what questions people ask. Mm. And that's the, probably the number one reason I like doing an engagement because you, it's like research. Right. Right. What's on public engagement. Minds? Yeah, exactly. I love hearing it. Yeah, so it's really interesting to see the questions you asked. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Simon. Um, I'm off. I'm going to go have dinner and stuff. Okay. uh, I'm going to let you get on with your day. (laughs) Got to get back to work. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. And uh, I really appreciate it. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Professor Simon Donner. You can find him on Twitter at Simon Donner. And his website is simondonner.com. Okay. So let's. Yeah, that's right. If you want to follow the podcast, it's at ClimateSciPod on Twitter as well. If you want uh, to get updates that way, I sometimes do post updates on that Twitter account. I'm at DanJonesOcean. Let's skip straight to the check-in. So I occasionally, at the end of these podcasts, just tell you a little bit something mildly personal, at least mildly personal. So December was rough. I don't know. I was exhausted. I really did not feel up to doing very much in terms of productivity. 
Uh, I basically wasn't able to put any of these out, so thanks for your patience. I know there might be some of you who've been waiting on these, so thanks very much for being patient with me and understanding. It, uh, it's rough, and now England's back in another lockdown. We, uh, I wasn't going out much anyway, but the, uh, the schools are closed to prevent the spread of the virus or to slow it down. And, uh, but uh, hey, at least the vaccines are rolling out. Um, I'm looking forward to getting stabbed, getting jabbed, and hopefully building an immunity to this horrible, horrible virus, which is uh, really putting a damper on things, to put it very ridiculously mildly. But yeah, I don't know. It'll get better. We're, we'll get there. So hang in there. Take care of yourselves. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.